Welcome back to episode 6 of the Ancestral Elements podcast, Earth. Today we are going to take an in-depth look at this element of Earth. We're going to look at it from an anthropological perspective all the way up until current times. Welcome back everybody to episode 6, the last in this element series. Before we get started with the podcast, I wanted to give you guys a heads up and let you know that I have created an online forum for discussion where listeners of the podcast can go to this forum and discuss different topics that you hear and communicate with each other. I want this to be a place where we can express ideas and share information and learn from one another. So if you go to ancestralelements.com slash community, you can find access to the forum there. It's just a quick registration where you type in your email and you can get started in this conversation. So please feel free to ask me questions on that forum, ask each other questions, and let's share ideas. So again, go to ancestralelements.com slash community for access to this forum. I'm going to take this episode and kind of make it a summary of everything that I've talked about in these last five weeks. And then I'm going to move on and tell you my own life story. And I want this to be a very honest account. I want you guys to leave with a very clear understanding of who you're listening to and where I'm coming from with all of this information. Okay, so let's start from an ancestral perspective. I'm going to walk you guys back about 10 to 12,000 years to the start of the Neolithic Revolution, which is where people started farming. They started to come out of kind of full-time hunter-gatherer populations. And this is a point in history where I feel that we fundamentally started to change who we are as a human species. No one really knows why we stopped hunting and gathering and living in small communal groups of about 15 to 60 people. There are multiple theories, which we can go through some of them, but really what I want to get across here is that it's extremely recent. This is an extremely recent experiment, and not every human took the same path. They, there are still people that have not taken part in any domestication, which is an important thing to note and to realize, because I think that we tend to think in this culture that everybody is on board with what the domesticated human population is doing and has done. But there are still uncontacted tribes that have no idea what the world is doing. Gobegli Tepe is an archaeological site, and it's believed to mark that time in history where, where people shifted from hunter-gatherer populations to what's known as part-time horticulturalists or part-time agriculturalists. And what this site is, it's most likely a temple or a place of worship or a place where they could observe the natural rhythms through of the earth through astrological perspective or through watching the sun. This is how a lot of these ancient t- temples were built. They were built to observe the stars. 
and the sun and the planets and how things align. There seems to be a lot of questions that they were mulling over and that these people really wanted to figure out. They wanted to possibly figure out their place in the world. This site dates back to 12,000 years ago, roughly. It predates the Egyptian pyramids by 6,500 years. And what this really gets at is the fact that this was a huge undertaking. You needed ample resources to build such a big, extreme site, meaning you need excess food and you need excess labor, which it may or may not have been slave labor, but it's highly likely that not everybody was on board with using so many resources to build such a massive site for the time. And anytime you have to stockpile resources, anytime you have to stockpile food or other valuable resources, you need people to protect it. Meaning you need a policing class or a military class to protect those resources. So when you start hoarding or storing excess, you need people watching over that. And it starts to create a hierarchy. Not that hierarchies are necessarily bad, but it marks a shift in the culture. It marks the shift from a more egalitarian culture where you just took and worked with the land and you took the resources you needed in a very sustainable way and you started shifting to an approach of stockpiling resources. And This is an approach we are very familiar with in today's world because this is what countries and people still do. But this seems to be kind of the first time about 12,000 years ago that this was done. This site, Gobegli Tepe, is in what is now Turkey, which that was considered part of the Fertile Crescent. So throughout Egypt and the Mediterranean, you have this massive kind of boom of farming. Um, Wheat was starting to be domesticated there, which is an interesting crop to domesticate because it's easily fermentable. You get beer from wheat. And there is a prominent theory that people started farming wheat and left the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to farm wheat because of beer or the process of alcohol making, this process of fermenting grains or wheat for alcohol. And let me be clear by saying that this is just a theory. No one really knows why people started farming and doing full-scale agriculture like it's done today. But when you really dig into this theory, it explains a lot. You know, people, hunter-gatherers knew how to ferment things. They knew the process of fermentation. It wasn't lost on them that you could take and do fermentation techniques to get alcohol. This was done for thousands of years before beer and winemaking were this more kind of official process of domesticating crops, but you only had fermentable wild foods 
in a very short window, meaning that you could make the alcohol and you could drink a lot of that alcohol for a very short period of time, meaning you wouldn't have that alcohol throughout the year like we do now. So no one could essentially become an alcoholic. Nobody could, nobody had the potential to abuse or an alcohol like we see today. The only thing you could really do is throw a big party. And that was done a few times a year, usually with the changing of seasons. You would be able to have a big harvest party or have parties certain times a year where drugs and alcohol was used, but was only used in a celebratory manner. But with the domestication of grains and learning how to mass ferment those grains, then you had alcohol all the time. There had to have been a catalyst to get people to lead sedentary lives. And it's very possible that alcohol was at least a main component of that equation. So through domestication, you're looking at a new model, a new ordering of the world that is inherently unsustainable. If you look at the Fertile Crescent, or what's sometimes called as the breadbasket of civilization, meaning all the countries bordering kind of the Mediterranean and just north of the Mediterranean Sea, that was some of the most productive farmland on the planet. And yes, climate change affected crops, but a lot of that destruction, the reason why Egypt is now a desert, was down to organic farming. And it was an unstable practice. They didn't allow the land to rest. They didn't allow the fields to lay fallow. And if you look at the ancient texts of that time, like the Old Testament and even through the New Testament, they were writing about farming. I mean, the Bible is essentially a book about farming. They had recognized that they had started to deplete the landscape and they needed new principles to restore the landscape and restore their bodies because of what they were doing was inherently unsustainable. So you had moved from this very sustainable model of hunter-gatherers to a very unsustainable farming practice. And a lot of what the Bible is talking about is a new ordering, a new way to have a sustainable model to move forward into the future. I like to think of the Bible as the first regenerative agriculture book ever written, because that's what a lot of it was. So regardless of what made the human species move to a model of farming, we need to realize that it's just not that old. Homo sapien has been in this form that we sit right now for the last 300,000 years, and probably longer. That is kind of the greed upon timeline at the moment for Homo sapien, but it's probably longer. And we need to realize that we have only been farming for the last 12,000 years. And even then, it took the world a long time to 
jump on that farming bandwagon. I mean, think about North America. You're not farming in North America until 1500, which is just a blink of an eye compared to 300,000 years ago. And then you fast forward to today, and we've, we use the practice of monocropping and genetically modifying and spraying nerve agents to kill pests and bugs on our food, which has furthered this unsustainable model so quickly that now we're trying to scramble to come up with sustainable practices because we've realized our approach to all of this has decimated our landscape. And I hope these last five weeks, if you've learned one thing, it's that our ancestors, our ancestors that predated these farming practices, were able to work within the elements. They didn't try to conquer things and fight them to remain sedentary. They literally moved and migrated and shifted with these natural elements they were able to remain in flux, and these people thrived. They were healthy, robust individuals. They didn't have all these degenerative diseases of domestication because there was, one, less people, and two, they weren't congregated and compacted in these tiny spaces where you could easily spread disease like we see today. I mean, 2020 is a great example of that. So what I'm getting at is the domestication of crops. We've essentially domesticated ourselves. We are a kind of diminutive version of our ancestors through this practice of domestication. And all this is not to say that we haven't come up with very useful technologies and we haven't grown as a species because... We undoubtedly have, but there needs to be a balance. We need to remember from where we came. Otherwise, this collective amnesia that is going around is going to bring our demise. And I don't know about you, but I really don't feel like flying up to Mars. I don't even want to live in South Dakota or Minnesota because of the winters, let alone Mars. So the sooner we realize as a species that being in connection with the natural world again is vital to our existence, the better it's going to be. Which brings us around to traditional Chinese medicine and this earth element. So this earth element is at the center of the rest of the elements. If you picture earth being in the middle, the four elements that we've talked about so fire, water, metal, and wood all come out from that earth element. It all surrounds that earth element, meaning that the earth is, and its abundance supplies those elements, and those elements feed the earth, and in return, feed your body. And really, this earth element is about connection. It's this grounding element, or this anchor point, reality, at least it should be, which I think nowadays is a pretty foreign concept. You know, we get so lost in the built environment, in this kind of artificial environment that we've created, that 
it's easy to lose our center. It's easy to lose our anchor point to the natural world. A lot of people don't have an anchor point to the natural world. A lot of people are scared of the earth. They're scared to be outside and scared to feel those feelings because they're so protected in this cozy environment that we've created, this domesticated environment. Domestication means of the house, literally. So we literally have become of the house instead of of the land or of the natural world. So inside the body in traditional Chinese medicine, this earth element is an element of the spleen. So spleen function is extremely crucial. It is like your blood cell recycling plant. So it cleans up all of the damaged and used up blood that cycles through your body. It kind of filters all of that. I mean, it's a big filter. It filters the blood, basically, which is why a spleen laceration can be so detrimental because the body toxifies if the spleen doesn't work. It's also highly connected to the lymphatic system. And the lymphatic system is essentially the toxic waste dumps of your body. So all of the toxic materials and kind of materials that your body processes through and needs to get rid of goes through your lymphatic system. And that connects to all your lymph nodes, which is why when you're sick and you're recycling viruses or bacteria, those lymph nodes get swollen. That's a natural process that your body takes. That's a good thing. It means things are being filtered out. And so all that lymph filters into the spleen. The emotions associated with this organ in traditional Chinese medicine are a calming emotion, kind of on the positive side. And on the negative side, emotions would be kind of worrying or being kind of chronically stressed out. So if you think back to these four elements that we've talked about, fire, wood, metal, water, all of them really have a degree of cleansing in them, which this earth element absolutely has and the spleen has in the body. It really, it's all about kind of cleansing and moving forward in a new way or a healthier way or getting rid of the old stuff, the old baggage. Think about how often the earth is constantly breaking materials down and utilizing elements of those materials. Look at compost and the art of composting, whether it's food or wood or you name it, newspaper, plastics, all of that stuff eventually gets broken down from the earth from the weather, from these elements that we've talked about. The earth is at the center of this cleansing kind of ideology. And really, your body is no different. It's not separate from that process. You're constantly breaking down and rebuilding tissues and organs. It's this constant process. And if things remain in balance and you're in tune to those processes, then you remain healthy. The body stays healthy. And so does the earth. This whole thing is about 
balance and fluctuation and learning. If you have a need in one area, it's got to come from a different area. You only have so many resources that you can use at once before something becomes unbalanced. So sustainability is inherently baked into this equation. You can't get rid of it. You're either living sustainably or you're living unsustainably. There's, those are the two options. That's it. And it's important to realize that those are the only two options. But what we've done is we've created an environment of unsustainability. And we've done a lot of that through the use of farming and agriculture, where we've created surpluses of food, and that's created a population explosion like we've never seen in human history. But it's also created a degree of unsustainability for us to inhabit the earth, for us to have enough resources for everybody. And then you start running out of space and packing people into urban areas and cities. And that's when a lot of disease ends up coming up. And a lot of times it wipes out millions of people. Again, like we've seen in 2020 this year. I mean, it has been millions, but a lot of people have died. And this happens again and again and again. There are these biological norms in species that there is a natural carrying capacity for the region for a particular species to thrive. And now it's becoming very well documented that we are facing what's called a sixth extinction because we've, we are far, far over our carrying capacity as Homo sapiens. And things always arise when things are that out of balance. And I'm not saying some major mass extinction event is going to occur and wipe out, you know, billions of people next year or anything. But what I am getting at is we need to start thinking species-wide on how to be more sustainable for not only our human species, but all the species that are in the earth and that we interact with. Otherwise, there's going to be major consequences, and we're going to have to deal with those consequences generation after generation. And really, what we've done is we've artificially inflated the human population due to our built environments, which a lot of that is down to agriculture and farming practices. Because if you have ample food, that means you're going to have ample population growth. Because if you don't have enough food, then you can't procreate. You can't produce people if there isn't enough food. So people that were living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, if people thought they were barely surviving, barely hanging on, it's easy to kind of depict them as people that just had a miserable life. That's not true. They had enough food because they were having children. And they were progressing the human population. But we have too much food. We have too much feast and not enough famine. I mean, look at all the metabolic and obesity-driven diseases that pop up in our culture today. And that is largely down to this artificial environment we've created. What I mean by that is cities and major towns, all these are 
have human influence, so they are artifacts. Definition of an artifact is a natural element that has human influence on it. So we've made these major urban areas inside of the natural environment, but they're kind of closed off. They're closed off to the effects. It almost numbs us out, and it honestly does numb our bodies out to the natural world. We become disconnected from the natural world. We lose that anchor point to the earth because we're insulated by concrete and high-rises and steel. But the fact of the matter is we are still in a natural environment. A natural environment still surrounds us even when we are in houses and cities. What cities tend to do is on a biological level, on a physiological level, is they, they do numb the nervous system out. Think about if you had to be highly, highly tuned in your nervous system living in a city. Everything would give you panic attacks and anxiety. Think about a police siren, how scary that would be if you had never heard of one before, or just road noise, right? So you're forced to adapt to that environment. Your body does it automatically without you even realizing it. You start to numb out the nervous system. How many times have you been walking behind somebody and they had no idea you were even there and you were maybe three paces back from them? That's somebody who's downgraded or numbed out their nervous system to function in this artificial built environment that we've created. I've seen this a lot firsthand in doing body work for the last 12 years. You get people on the table and they literally can't feel. They are so disconnected with the systems in their body that a lot of times the nervous system has essentially reduced itself down to feeling very little. Whereas if you spend a lot of time in a natural environment, your nervous system is going to have time and space to integrate all of that information that you're picking up from the natural world. That's the thing about in an artificial urban environment like that is things are so fast-paced. You have so much being bombarded at you constantly, so many distractions all of the time. You can't integrate it. Our nervous system and our body does not function like that. And when you're only used to a built environment, trying to tune your body back into the elements can be a long process. And it's not something you have to do all at once. You know, it can be a lifelong pursuit. You know, it can be something as simple as building a fire in the backyard and having that as your launching point or going for daily walks. Start small and just slowly build if you really want to integrate the stuff into your life because it takes time to get things kind of fired up again in a way that it relates to a natural environment. And really my whole life has been a lesson in this. And so I'm going to flip into telling you my life story now and how it all started. So I was born in Seattle, Washington. I lived on an island, a small island, um, that you could only access with a ferry boat. The island is Vashon Island. It uh, is about 14 miles long from tip to tip and about seven miles wide at its widest point. 
uh, I grew up on a 20-acre homestead where I rode horses and dirt bikes, and we had pigs and goats and cows and chickens uh, and a big garden. So we slaughtered our own animals. We produced fruits and vegetables from the orchard and from the garden. And it was an introduction into learning how to integrate my body into a natural landscape from a very young age, which it's a damn good thing that I had all of that because I was born extremely premature. I was born three and a half months early. I weighed one pound, 12 ounces and was 12 inches long. To give you some context around that, uh, there's a photo of me lying in my dad's hand, just one hand he's holding me, and my body essentially fit into his hand. My head also was a circumference of a coffee cup. It would actually fit inside a coffee cup. There's a photo of me floating around with my head inside of a coffee cup too. So I was tiny. I was classified as a what's now called a micropremie. I was born in 1988, so 32 years ago. Uh, and up until that point, no baby boy had ever survived that was as small as me in Swedish hospital in Seattle. Luckily, it was and still is a world-class hospital, especially for NICU work. So I had an excellent team of nurses and doctors that looked after me. I was in the hospital for three and a half months. I went home on my original due date. I spent the first two months in an incubator, so essentially closed off kind of from the world. Uh, I had massive brain hemorrhaging, so a lot of brain bleeding. Um, They put me on a straight caffeine drip uh, to keep my heart pumping because everything was underdeveloped. My nervous system wasn't fully developed. My lungs weren't really functioning well. Um, Nothing really worked, because I was extremely early. And so, luckily, being (laughs) a bit of a medical anomaly, um, they threw one of the best teams of doctors at me that they could to see if they could get me to survive. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have made it. So I essentially had a gigantic uphill battle. Uh, There's a story that my parents tell about them getting a call saying, you better get into the hospital, get on the ferry boat, and come to Seattle because he's got hours to live and he's not going to make it. Um, And by the time they got there, uh, I had kind of pulled through and kind of fought my way uh, back to life. Um, And there was a lot of things like that. There was a lot of unknown of what was going to happen. And really, the only major thing that has been a result of all this is the fact that I have extremely tight hamstrings and quads and calves. Uh, I have a little bit of nervous system imbalance through my left side of my body due to the stroke and the hemorrhaging I had as an infant. But 
that really only shows up when I get very tired. Just taking a kind of cursory look at me and how I function in day-to-day life, you wouldn't ever really know. Um, I like to think I do okay anyway. Uh, So yeah, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. And like I said, you know, luckily I had a really great team. But that was just kind of the beginning. I was left with surviving all of this. And it left me with a lot of questions and it left me searching for answers at a very young age to try to piece together how I could get my body to function and feel good, not only physically, but mentally as well. And luckily, I was in an environment that allowed me to explore and it allowed me to engage on a very deep level to these elements that we have been going through these past five weeks. I can guarantee you that I would not be who I am today if I didn't grow up in that environment. I mean, if I were to grow up in the city, let's say in an apartment, forget about it. There's no way I could have had the degree of development that I ended up having. There's no way that I could have engaged so intensely to build my body and build my brain in a way that I was able to do as a young child living in the woods in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't want to make it sound like I did this all on my own because I didn't. I spent 14 years doing weekly physical therapy with a physical therapist who was fantastic. She worked with me from about six months old until I was 14. Happened to work for the school district. She had a physical therapy office in my elementary school. And I would get pulled out of class to go to PT appointments. And this is where, and this is honestly where I started to ask questions about the human body and about my body more specifically. Obviously, they were very basic questions like, why are my legs so tight? And what can I do to decrease this tight feeling that I feel all the time? And when I say my legs were tight, I mean they were tight. I spent the first about five years of my life walking around on the balls of my feet, on my tippy toes, because I physically could not touch my heels to the ground. My mom used to take me to the beach below our house, and we would practice making footprints in the sand because I couldn't make a full footprint. It was just my toes. So. Like I said, at a very early age, I was forced to deal with things that people never would even think about. It just comes natural to people. It didn't come natural to me. I had to work at it. I was forced to work at it if I wanted to succeed and grow in any meaningful way. I mean, and thank God my parents had the forethought to create a bit of a challenging environment for me physically to grow my physical capabilities. They would put ladders up in the living room for me to climb on. We had balance beams around for me to balance and develop some hand-eye coordination and balance to engage and to keep the nervous system activated to continually start to build this very weak 
nervous system that was a result of being born extremely early. Obviously, they had the fortitude and the forethought to do that for me, which, good God, um, thank you so much. If that hadn't been done again, I wouldn't have turned out the way I turned out. So little things like that throughout my life um, turned out to be extremely, extremely valuable to my existence. Invaluable, really. And again, I had room to run, literally. I had acreage to explore. Another amazing thing is I had a brother that was five and a half years older, so I got to keep up with him. If it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. It was very uh, important for me to try to keep up with my older brother, as younger brothers try to do. Um, But he pushed me. My grandfather lived nearby, and I remember he would kind of tell me that I couldn't do something because he knew that it stirred something inside me to then go and do it. It was little things from people um, that I could use as fuel to kind of climb my way out of this rough start that I had. My grandfather used to love telling the story of how I learned how to ride a bike. I learned how to ride a bike at about, I don't know, four years old. I was young. Again, I was trying to keep up with my older brother. And he used to tell the story where he raised the training wheels up so they wouldn't hit the ground. Um, But I still thought they would um, kind of support me. I didn't realize that they weren't doing anything. And I would take the bike to the top of a hill that he had. And I would sit on it and ride down and fall over and cry. And then I would push the bike up to the top of the hill again while I was crying and I would get back on and ride it down and fall and cry more and I did this all day long uh, until I learned how to ride a bike and there was a lot of things like that in my life that I wasn't willing to give up on I wasn't willing to quit so there was this something inherently and intrinsically inside of me that caused me to fight I mean obviously because I wouldn't be alive today If that wasn't the case, um, that just became a part of me. And it became kind of a part of my identity and this kind of operating system that I'm running on. So this was a slow learning that I had to go through as a boy. I had to really pay attention to my body and how I felt all of the time. Again, things that people maybe take for granted, I didn't have the luxury to take for granted. Things like my blood sugar. I was extremely hypoglycemic, so my blood sugar would drop drastically without food, which I still deal with. Just talk to my wife or my family about it. They'll tell you. I get pretty hangry. Um, (laughs) And so it was a big learning curve. Luckily, again, us growing our own food, both animals and plants, it gave me the ability to interact with plants and animals, and it gave me fresh food that I could go out and eat and pay attention to my body. I spent a lot of time alone or with my brother just 
outside, just being outside in the woods. In the summertime, we would wake up early and run to the fig tree and eat figs for breakfast. And we would get the sugar hit of fructose and a ton of energy. My dad kept bees, so we had fresh honey around. We had blackberry and raspberry bushes. And it was during those really early years that I started to pay attention to how my body felt from food. I had to because, again, I wouldn't have done well if I didn't. I couldn't ignore things because I didn't have the luxury to ignore anything that was going on physiologically in my body. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. These were very basic observations and basic questions that I was asking myself. I don't want to make it sound like I was really figuring out the complexities of nutrition and how that affected my body, but I was gathering data. I was collecting these little experiences that gradually started to take root inside of me and that I just couldn't ignore. Because once you name something, once you bring something into realization in your mind, you can't ignore it. I mean, you could jam it down and pretend it's not there, but once you name it, you either deal with it or you go crazy. And really, what I was doing at a very basic level, I was starting to pay attention to how my body felt. And then I would take that information and I would sit with it in a natural environment. And I would contemplate it. I sat alone in the woods quite a bit. A lot of times I would build forts and just sit inside them and listen to the wind or the birds or play with different little bugs. I had the ability to get quiet, to learn how to deal with this very sporadic, untrained, unhealthy nervous system that I was living in. I would have these extreme outbursts of anger and this kind of uncontrolled rage would almost come out of me until I was about seven years old. That's when my nervous system started to kind of relax out a little bit. I started to learn how to control this very damaged nervous system that I had. But it took a long time. It took a long time for my brain to kind of sync up with the rest of my body. And I remember feeling very frustrated a lot of the time that I couldn't get my body and get my brain to just kind of calm down. And it took a lot of years. And again, I didn't do it alone. My dad used to pull me aside and ask me a simple question of, son, are you going to control your emotions or are you going to let them control you? And what he really was saying by that was, you need to learn how to deal with the things that are coming up. Don't ignore them because that doesn't help, but deal with them in a constructive way that will teach you lessons. Because again, Back to episode one, when we were talking about those friction points, it's those points where it's those points of struggle where you start to get true insights to who you really are. 
And if you don't integrate those into your body, into your being, then you're missing a huge, huge piece of all of that. But all that takes time. It takes quiet. That's a tough thing to do when you're bombarded with extreme distraction from technology or TV or you name it. That's a tough thing to do in a massive urban environment. It's a very common phenomenon for preemies to have a very, very active nervous system. If you read accounts of people being born severely early like I was, a common theme is them being extremely jumpy, where the nervous system is almost in a kind of chronic fight or flight, um, which mine can definitely be. I'm very good at compartmentalizing things in very stressful situations, so medical situations. I can compartmentalize all those emotions and feelings and focus solely on the task. Um, I'm very comfortable in hospitals. They don't freak me out in the slightest. It's almost like, I don't know, this is going to sound weird, but it's almost like going back home when I enter a hospital. Most likely because those were such early imprints on my nervous system. They bring some odd comfort to me. Um, but it's a, so the nervous system piece for preemies is an important one to realize they need to integrate. And it takes time. And I'm sure that there are multiple different therapies you could go about. This was just my direction that I took. And largely it was self-directed, which I think I needed for me personally. I mean, I can only speak for myself on this stuff because I don't know really anybody else who's had these struggles. But for me, this was a valuable piece to essentially meditate in nature, which, you know, I didn't really even know I was doing that at the time, but that's basically what ended up happening. And I did a lot of kind of solo activities. I spent a lot of time alone on a dirt bike, hours and hours and hours on a dirt bike, which taught me coordination and balance and how to commit to something. Because if you didn't commit to a jump and you're flying through the air, that's a pretty dangerous recipe. Um, I spent a lot of time on a trampoline. I learned how to move my body in kind of space and time. I got pretty decent at kind of that gymnastics piece of moving my body. You know, again, commitment. Going in for a double backflip, you want to be committed. You can't uh, do that half-heartedly and expect a good outcome. And then I got into team sports. I played a lot of basketball from a young age all the way up through my teens, um, which was really good. Again, it taught me hand-eye coordination. I spent a lot of time playing basketball. So it was stacking these types of disciplines that really started to expand my capabilities. And every kid has to go through this. But for me, it was extremely important that I developed a sense of kind of normalcy in learning how to use my body. And then there was the education and kind of mental side to my life, where that was another extreme fight. And I say that because I was placed in 
what was called resource learning. It was a smaller classroom size. Uh, I learned the same material as everybody, but these were essentially classes for kids that had very bad behavior that couldn't essentially control themselves. I mean, I remember days where kids would be picking up desks and throwing them around the classroom and just out of control. And so I spent all the way up until seventh grade in those classes in that type of an environment. And I was really not like any of those kids that I was surrounded by. I did have regular classroom time, but for certain subjects, I'd be put into these smaller classes. And it was extremely frustrating because I understood the material and I, I ended up getting bored in those classes. Since I could do the work and I was calm, the teachers loved having me in there. And I not only could be a bit of a respite for them, I could get other people to calm down a little bit and show a little bit of leadership. But as far as an education standpoint, it didn't really further my education at all. It was a hindrance. And it wasn't until I hit middle school that I had to basically force my way out of that environment. And the teachers didn't like that very much. I remember I was supposed to have a study hall period, and they made me become a TA for a teacher that I had left in that program. And I remember getting so pissed off that about six months in, I told her I wasn't going to TA for her anymore because she was wasting my time and taking away from my studies. So when I say it was a fight, it was a bit of a fight. I had to stand up for myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And I don't necessarily blame the teachers or the school district because they were just kind of doing what they were told and going along with it. But if I hadn't have gotten so frustrated with it all and vocalized what I actually needed and wanted, nothing would have changed. And I knew I needed the challenge. I needed to be pushed in order to grow. Somehow that became very clear to me at a very young age that I needed challenges that I didn't know if I was going to be able to complete or commit to, but I knew I had to keep pushing myself, not only physically, but mentally in order to grow. And that goes for everybody. But again, it was vital to my development that I had stressors and challenges to force me out of a comfort zone. And so when I hit about 13, that's when I started to really take enjoyment in a mental challenge. I would compete against friends and classmates for good grades, and I started to look at it almost as a competitive sport. And that was a good driver for me at the time. It gave me confidence to put myself out there and know that I wasn't a whole lot different than everybody else around me. Because that was one negative thing that those resource learning teachers used to tell us. They used to tell us that we were different and had learning disabilities that we couldn't ever overcome. And man, that was such a fuel for me. I needed to prove them wrong, that they didn't know what the hell they were talking about, even though that I had a different start. 
I slowly over the years started to kind of stack up these small little wins in my own mind and put a little mark in the win column. And slowly but surely, I gained a little more confidence year after year. And as I got a bit older into my kind of mid and later teens and started to think about a career path, the body and some type of body work really seemed to make the most sense. I had spent 14 years doing weekly physical therapy, asking questions and paying attention to my body and learning concepts and ways to improve my body. And so it seemed like a pretty logical jump for me to get into. At first, I thought physical therapy would be a good route because that's what I spent a lot of time doing personally. I had direct experience with it. But the more I looked at it, it made a lot more sense for me to get into massage and get into body work through that lane. My dad had a best friend who was a body worker. Shout out to Brian West. Uh, he came to the house one time after my dad had had a stroke and worked on him. And I remember watching him work and there was just an extremely powerful, peaceful energy that kind of entered into the room. Very restorative. And I remember thinking that this mode of bodywork was a very impactful practice. It was a very connected practice into the body. A little bit more on kind of the, I guess, spiritual side, you could say, versus a little more sterile and clinical environment of physical therapy, which I think both are needed. And certainly they overlap significantly. But it was that experience that really um, got me thinking about doing that type of body work. And so the more I talked about it, the more it kind of resonated with me. And it just so happens that in talking to my dad about it, he needed a career change when I was about 15, and he ended up getting into body work. And so I got to watch him kind of learn that art um, of massage and body work, and I learned a lot from him. We ended up going to the same massage school taught by Dr. Thomas Ahern up in Mariposa, California, a great body working teacher. And he taught me the basics. He taught me the basics of learning how to connect with somebody, learning how to connect with a nervous system and systems of the body, and learn how to feel through your own body what their body was doing, and learn how to manipulate and to change. And so all those years of getting quiet and sitting alone in the woods started to resurface again for me because I had realized that I had learned how to integrate myself into my body and that that was a huge need for people because a lot of people had never needed to do that practice. There was too many distractions around them to even consider doing that. And there wasn't a catalyst for that. There wasn't a need. But for me, it was essentially my myopic focus. 
And so by learning bodywork and learning how to feel subtleties within systems of a body, it continued my journey of connection with my own body. It continued the integration of my own nervous system. This was a traditional Chinese bodyworking school, which it integrated these elements that we've been talking about. It integrated these pieces into the system of medicine that was very inherent to me because I had been able to actually feel and experience those growing up through my childhood. It was extremely meaningful to me personally. And then there was also the nutrition piece or the herbology piece to traditional Chinese medicine, which again ignited something inside of me that I had remembered experiencing as a kid. I remembered experience of eating fresh, clean food, whether it was wild foraged chanterelle mushrooms that we got off the property or you know, pork from a pig we slaughtered or fresh venison from a hunting trip my dad had gone on with my grandpa. These were experiences that very subtly shaped me. And it wasn't until really I was in my early 20s, maybe 21, that I started to remember how these made me feel and affect me. And I started to develop an interest in nutrition. And I used massage as a way to get myself through college. I used bodywork as a financial means, but also as a learning experience to get me through a conventional nutrition program. I went to Central Washington University, where I got a Bachelor's of Science in Nutrition and Food Science. And during that time, I did a lot of searching. I was very curious about not only the conventional side of nutrition and that conventional wisdom and knowledge that's been gained, but I wanted an ancestral look at it too, because I had remembered how I felt growing up in a homestead environment where I had the ability to interact with plants and animals, and I knew something was there. And it turns out from decades and decades of research, there is something there. There's something to be said about consuming wild foods, or at least foods that are grown in a sustainable, driven kind of permaculture way. It changes the genetics. When you take in food like that, it changes your own genetics. But that took a lot of years to develop and to weed through and kind of intertwine that conventional nutrition wisdom that is a USDA or FDA certified approach, this kind of very reductionist approach to nutrition. And I had to take that information and then integrate it into this whole systematic approach. And that's really where I've landed now. And that's really what Ancestral Elements is all about. It's about integrating this reductionist scientific approach into a more holistic setting. Because if you lose that holistic setting, then these very reduced down techniques 
don't really make a lot of sense. That's why mechanistic approaches in the body, individualistic, mechanistic approaches that researchers have to take, a lot of times don't make a lot of sense in the larger context. Not to say that they aren't necessarily valuable, because they very much can be, but you need to put them back in to a larger context. I'm not interested in dealing with this very clinical, USDA-approved, reductionist scientific approach. It can be useful in certain circumstances, absolutely, but it's got to be integrated into a larger context. Otherwise, you miss all of that. You miss something there. And that's why most, most nutrition research is such a joke. I mean, let's be honest, most people don't really give a rat's ass about nutrition. And a lot of that is down to it being done by these epidemiological studies where the information in the data isn't very sound. And it's extremely recent. You're dealing with, again, only domesticated food sources when you look at conventional nutrition. They don't factor in any lifestyle or any wild food approach that's grown in a natural environment. And all of those 100% change the genetics of the food. And if you take in those genetics, it will affect your genetics. In the study of epigenetics, which came from studying the human genome, and it came out of the Human Genome Project, they realized environmental triggers activated genes. They would turn off and turn on certain genes based on environmental factors, such as food and toxins and a whole list of other things that are found in your environment. But food is the main driver for epigenetics. So when I talk about wild foods and changing the genetics of your own body, this is how it's derived. This is how it's done. So I can understand why most people don't really care about nutrition. Again, a lot of people don't want to pay attention to how food and their relationship with food affects their body because they're caught up in, you know, a nine to five kind of daily grind that doesn't get you into your body at all. As a matter of fact, it takes you out of your body and puts you into an artificial environment that doesn't feed your body. It just takes from your body. That's what this built environment ultimately ends up doing. Whereas nature just wants to feed your body if you pay attention to it. And if you choose to connect back in, I guarantee you that's what will happen. And really, the only time people pay attention to their body a lot of times is when something goes wrong. When either they get sick or when there's some major imbalance that forces them to pay attention. And a lot of the times, the information is so confusing to people, people get discouraged and they don't know what to do. And I'm going to do my very best these next episodes to try to set the record straight a little bit as things pertain to nutrition and leading an integrated healthy lifestyle. That's my ultimate goal here. And really, the goal is to just bring people slightly back into their body, get them connected again, get them feeling again. That's the mission here, because that's when things start to change. That's how you start to heal. You have to be connected into your body to heal. You have to be willing to tap into that parasympathetic nervous system in order to heal. 
you have to be able to put aside the fear and the fog that tends to surround your own biology. There is such a fear around the body that we run to experts for any tiny little thing that goes wrong. We run to the doctor. I mean, the number one reason why people go to the doctor is low back pain, which says something about at least the American public. It says that if any little thing comes up, then you just want to defer it. And we're in a system now that is fantastic at acute care and piecing people back together, but they are terrible at the chronic stuff, at the chronic sickness and disease. We fail miserably in the system of medicine. And yeah, if you get hit by a bus, you don't want to run to your herbalist or nutritionist for medical advice. You want the most cutting-edge technology possible. Now, if you're dealing with systematic disease and chronic disease, you may need to change that methodology a little bit. But it starts with knowing how to develop some tools and some skills personally so you can start to mitigate some of that stuff. I have spent the last 12 years doing body work on people, addressing physical issues. And a lot of people's response to physical issues is to ignore them, is to not deal with them in hopes that they'll just kind of magically get better. And yeah, sometimes they do because the body has these innate healing processes that work phenomenally well. But a lot of times that can progress into other areas of the body and cause other areas of dysfunction. You see it a lot in runners, especially long distance runners, where they will develop knee problems or hip problems or low back problems and they'll just spend years running through them and things will become so malaligned that they start wearing out joints and tendons and ligaments and things start systematically breaking down but they're so addicted to this discipline that they ignore their body they ignore what their body is trying to signal to them and a lot of times people will stand by these disciplines that ultimately degrade their body and ultimately make them unhealthy so really, if you want health going into the future, it starts with being aware of what's going on in your own body. I mean, what would happen if there was, let's say, a pandemic and people couldn't get access to the type of health care they normally could get access to? What would happen if something went wrong in society and you had to start taking a little bit more of responsibility for your own health? That would be a major problem, and one that a lot of people wouldn't even have the slightest idea of how to deal with. All of these concepts that I've covered are concepts that I have been personally working on and working toward for my entire life, and I think that they now, more than ever, are extremely necessary to start to reclaim our own health because it's so easy to get lost. It's so easy to become overwhelmed in this system that we're all in, which is another reason why I developed the Ancestral Elements Forum, that community forum. It's so that we can share ideas with each other. We can share recipes or just 
different topics, different nutritional concerns. If you guys are looking for information, then I want to be able to do my best to supply you with that. So please feel free to submit topics or ask questions on that forum. If you would rather not make it public, please feel free to email me at info at ancestralelements.com. I would be more than happy to correspond with you. But if you are searching for a new approach, if you're looking for a new path through all of this and you want some advice, please do not hesitate to reach out. This is going to be the last podcast I do of 2020. And what do you hear it's been? I think if anything, it should have been a wake-up call to people. It should have been a wake-up call that not everything always goes perfectly. Not all of these systems function as they should. And it doesn't take a whole lot to throw a wrench into all of this that we've created. Things are fragile. But I think the more you can take own your own responsibility for your health, the more resilient you're going to be, the more adaptable you become to an ever-changing world that maybe isn't clear. And we don't know what's going to happen moving forward into 2021, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's not all magically just going to be better. And it's not all magically going to come back to an, a normal thing because that's really not how biology works. It takes time for biology to progress. So if you're thinking that as soon as the clock hits midnight on New Year's Eve and it's 2021 and you're going to go back to 2019 normal times, you may be in for a rude awakening because I don't think it's going to be that clean. We could be in this for a while. And so I think the more you can do to build in some self-resilience, the better. And I just want to say thank you for listening to these concepts. I hope that this episode in particular gives you a bit of an understanding of where I'm coming from and who I am. And I'm excited to develop a bit of a community. I'm excited to share new ideas and information. So again, thank you so much for following along. And there's a lot more to come. We are just getting started. This is just the beginning. So buckle in because here we go. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening.